Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Well, as we ended our last lesson, Jesus promised to do whatever we ask in his name so that the Father may be glorified. And I know that some people uh, think that that means that we can claim any blessing that we decide upon. But when he emphasizes in the text that we have to pray in his name, it means a lot more than just tagging that phrase onto the end of a request, saying, I pray this in Jesus' name. To ask something in his name really is another way of saying that what we ask for is totally in line with his will and his character. And Jesus also says that what we ask is also so that the Father may be glorified. You see, it is when we ask for things that are in line with his nature, when we ask for things that bring glory to the Father, then we know without hesitation he will do as he has promised. Jesus then goes on in John chapter 14 verse 15 to tell us, if you love me, keep my commands. It's really important that we understand that obedience is the proof that we love him. The two go hand in hand, which is why James would later say in the book of James that faith without works is dead. You see, our obedience is not what saves us, but our obedience is what proves that we love Jesus. Now, as Jesus begins to refer to the Holy Spirit, I want you to pay special attention to each time Jesus uses the word he and him when speaking about the Spirit of God. Let's pick it up in verse 15 again. If you love me, keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Jesus in this text very clearly refers to the Holy Spirit as a person. And we've already seen that Jesus claimed to be one with the Father. And here we're introduced to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we do not worship three gods. According to texts such as Isaiah 45 verse 5, Scripture very clearly reveals that there is one God. Let me quote it. It says, I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. However, the scripture does teach something called the doctrine of the Trinity. The word Trinity isn't found in the scripture, but it is our word to describe what the scriptures teach. The Trinity can be defined as follows. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and each person is fully God, and there is one God. 
So there is only one God, but with regard to the redemption of mankind, we see him act as three different persons. There is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus wants to introduce us to the Holy Spirit. Now, I know some people talk of the Holy Spirit as merely being the power of God, but the Holy Spirit is never referred to in Scripture as just a force. The Holy Spirit is never referred to as it, but rather always as He. So to further help us grasp this truth of the Holy Spirit being a person, we could go and look at Acts chapter 5, which you might want to do later. The events recounted there are um, pointing to a time in the life of the early church when members were selling their possessions and combining their resources, not because they had to, but because they wanted to. And there was a couple by the name of Ananias and Sapphira who sold their land. And perhaps they really did it for the praise of men. But when they came to give the money to the apostles, they lied about the money that they donated. They pretended that they'd given it all when in reality they'd held some of it back for themselves. Now, to hold some of the money back was perfectly within their rights to do. They issue was not that this couple had not given everything to the church. The issue was that they lied about what they had given. And in Acts chapter 5 verse 3, Peter says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? Now, let me tell you, you cannot lie to a chair or a table, some lifeless object. You cannot lie to a fire or to the wind, which would just be merely a force. You can only lie to a person. And as it turns out, that person also happens to be God himself. For Peter goes on to conclude, saying to Ananias in verse 4 of chapter 5, you have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Whatever else the story about Ananias and Sapphira teaches us, it clearly shows that the Holy Spirit is God and that he is the third person of the Trinity. Additionally, Paul says to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 10 through 11, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Just as the Son is God, so too the Holy Spirit is God. Here in John 14 verse 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is given to those who believe as another advocate. And the Greek word for advocate here really means one who comes alongside to help. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit only came upon certain people, such as prophets, kings, and priests, and usually it would only be a temporary anointing. However, here Jesus tells us that Christ followers will receive the Holy Spirit, and not only will the Holy Spirit be with us, but he will indwell us. Jesus goes on in John 14 verse 17 to say that the world, 
in other words, those who have not entrusted themselves to Christ, that the world struggle to accept the Holy Spirit and his work. To be exact, it says that the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But Christ followers do know him because the Holy Spirit will indwell us. Now, I want you to take note of those words in verse 17, where Jesus says, He, meaning the Holy Spirit, lives with you and will be in you. That's very important and we'll see why in a moment. Jesus then goes on to say to the disciples that he will not leave them or us abandoned and alone. Verse 19. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Look at that verse 20. Just a moment ago, we noted the fact that Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will indwell us. And now what does Jesus say? Jesus says that he will be in us. And that's evidence again of the Trinity, that Father, Son and Spirit are all one also. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father and I too will love them and show myself to them. So love is really proved by obedience. Those who love Jesus are loved by God the Father. And not only that, Jesus himself loves us back and he will reveal more about himself to us. Verse 20, Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So as we're told there in the text, Judas was a very common name at the time. And this man, this Judas, was also known by his second name, which was Thaddeus. Jesus explained to him that those who love Christ are in relationship with God the Father and they are indwelt by him and that he continues to reveal himself more and more as they walk in obedience to him. Now, Jesus goes on to explain the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Verse 25. All this I have spoken while still with you, but the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit's work then is to teach us all things. He is the one who reminds us of the things that Jesus has said. And so I would encourage you to pray for his involvement in your life. For example, before reading scripture, I will often pray that God would teach me from it. And not only that, but when I'm talking to friends who are encountering difficulties, I usually pray that the Holy Spirit would give me the words to say, the things from the word of God that they need to hear in that moment of trial. 
Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The Holy Spirit is also known as the Comforter. He comforts us, giving us God's peace in all circumstances. We need not be troubled or afraid because Christ doesn't give like the world gives. If you think about it, the world gives with one hand and takes back with the other. But Christ is not like that. His peace does not depend on our circumstances either. You heard me say I'm going away. I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The fact that Jesus is returning to the Father should cause his disciples to rejoice, because that will mean that the work of redemption is finally complete. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now let us leave. So Jesus warns them of what is to come, and He does so so that they will know the truth of who he is. Satan, the prince of this world, is about to make his move, but he has no hold over Christ. Jesus, the sinless one, is far greater than he. According to verse 31, what Christ is about to do is done out of love and obedience to his Father in heaven. Remember, Jesus gave his life. It was not taken from him. In John chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus, speaking of his life, said, No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. So Christ gave his life freely and willingly to accomplish the purposes of God the Father, to purchase mankind for God and to redeem us from Satan's grasp. When Jesus says there, come, now let us leave, they get up and begin their walk to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was one of his favorite places to pray. And as they walk, Jesus begins to use terminology that they would have all been very familiar with, as vines and vineyards were common throughout Israel. Here, at the beginning of chapter 15, Jesus makes his seventh and final great I am statement. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. 
So here, Jesus uses the picture of the vine to teach his followers a spiritual truth. The disciples would have been very familiar with the fact that Herod, when he remodeled the temple, he decorated it with a beautiful golden vine. And in fact, they may have even been passing that at this point of their walk that evening. But Jesus says to them, I am the true vine. In other words, if they wanted to bear fruit for the owner of the vineyard, the gardener, then they needed to attach themselves to him, not to the temple and all that happened there. Jesus made it very clear to them that God the Father is the gardener in this illustration and that he's the one who's responsible for cutting off useless branches. And if you know your history, the Romans would come and destroy the temple not long after this. It's almost as if that branch would be cut off. But notice we're told that God also prunes the useful, fruitful branches so that they bear even more fruit. And certainly that was the case for these early believers because they would be cut back with persecution. But that the truth of it is that that only seemed to advance the gospel even more. Jesus is the vine, and in verse 5, we'll see him go on to tell us that we who believe in him are the branches. The fact that God prunes even those who are fruitful seems a really hard thing to bear, though, doesn't it? But this might help. Whenever I speak of this passage, I remember back to our home in Botswana. My husband planted a grapevine at the edge of our house and he hoped that it would grow up some poles onto an area by the roof to provide both shade as well as grapes. But the truth is the vine did very poorly. No matter how we looked after it, it remained more like a weed and it really seemed as if it would go nowhere. Well, at the time, our dog had puppies and they were very difficult to control. One day, one of the puppies decided to take a bite out of the grapevine. And in fact, he bit the stem right off, just leaving a very small piece of the vine still visible above the ground. And the rest of the vine was trailing out of his mouth as he ran around the yard. I was sure that that vine would never recover and that that harsh pruning would have killed it. But actually, that harsh pruning was the very thing that caused the vine to flourish. It did eventually reach the top of the poles. It did create shade and it even bore grapes. The thing that I thought was sure to kill it was actually the very thing that helped it. And I think that's rather like us in our walk with God. Sometimes the Father allows things into our lives that seem to cut us down as well. And yet, for those who belong to him, those trials are really just fuel for new growth. At the time, the trial might really seem as if it will kill us, but we can trust God that all things work together for our good and that those times of pruning will cause us to cling to Jesus more closely. 
To bear fruit, we need to remain in the vine. We must continue to hold on because just as a branch cannot bear fruit on its own without being connected to the vine, neither can we. Our fruitfulness depends on our connection to Jesus. So he goes on in verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. According to Jesus in verse 7, we stay in him by storing up the word of God in our hearts, and we will bear much fruit as we show ourselves to be Christ's followers. Without Jesus, we really can do nothing. We can't produce fruit without him working in us and through us. Here I see a beautiful picture as well of the Trinity at work in how God relates to his people. Because the father is the owner of the vineyard, he is the gardener, and he prunes us out of love. The Son is the anchor vine, and the Holy Spirit is really like the sap that flows from him, bringing life and fruitfulness to all of us who are the branches. The Word of God plays a key part in our fruitfulness, but it really isn't about gaining more academic knowledge. The real question is never how much you or how little you know of God's Word. Rather, it's all about what have you done with what you do know, because hearing God is always linked to obeying what God has said. Look at verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Jesus left us an example of obedience even unto death. But God's commands are not harsh. Living God's way actually frees us from the entanglement of sin and it leads us to being filled with joy. It's our connectedness to Jesus that results in all of the fruit of the Spirit being evidenced in our lives. Now, sometimes I know that when we think about bearing fruit for God, we often think in terms of service and what we do for him. But according to Galatians 5, 22 to 23, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Fruitfulness is not just about what we do for God, but it is more about who we become in Christ. And I would encourage all of you that the growth of any fruit takes time. Look at verse 11. My command, sorry, verse 12. Look at verse 12. 
My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. So Jesus asks us to live in humility. And as we learned in our last lesson, it's not about thinking less of ourselves, but rather it's about not thinking of ourselves at all. He asks us to be willing to give up our lives, our own plans and desires in order to serve one another. You see, sometimes he wants us to say no to ourselves for the sake of someone else. Remember in John 14, 15, Jesus said that if we love him, we will obey his commands. And here in John 15, 14, Jesus says that If we do what he commands, we are his friends. A friend of the king in those days would be one who knew the king's secrets, but they would still work for the king with his purposes in mind. So we serve the Lord, not as servants, but rather as trusted friends. How did we get to be in this very privileged position as a friend to the King of Kings? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command love each other. What a blessing it is to know that we have been specially chosen. I don't know about you, but when anyone picked a team for any game at school, no one ever wanted to pick me to play for them. But Jesus has. For all my focus on the fact that I chose Jesus to be my savior, truly he chose me first. And not only that, he chose me with a purpose in mind that I bear lasting fruit for his kingdom. And he has specially chosen you as well. Just because Jesus chose his disciples, though, it did not mean that life was going to be easy for them. And it won't be easy for you and me either. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. When Jesus uses the term world there, it's to describe those who were living apart from God and who are opposed to Jesus, the one he has sent. And it's very important to understand that when he used that term, he was including even the religious leaders of that time, because although they said they knew God, they rejected Jesus as being the only way to the Father. They hated the disciples then, and the world still hates the followers of Christ even now. 
Why do they hate us? It's because they hate Jesus first and foremost. They also hate us because we're not with them any longer, for Jesus has chosen us out of the world system in which we used to live. You know, we often think that persecution is only associated with those who are imprisoned or tortured for their faith in Christ. And of course, that is a part of persecution. But the Greek word for persecution that John uses in John 15:20 is dioko, and it means to harass, to trouble, to abuse, and it also means to drive away or to push away. So have you ever felt pushed away by those you've tried to respectfully share Christ with? If so, you have suffered a form of persecution. Verse 20, Remember what I told you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. That's key. A servant is not greater than his master. We can all expect at some point to be pushed away when we lovingly stand for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you have chosen us specifically with a purpose in mind, and that is to bear much fruit for your kingdom. We know, though, that the road you call us to is not an easy one. We may be pruned and cut back, but we have to trust you as the gardener, that you know what you're doing and that you are causing only more growth within us and within the kingdom. So, Lord, we just come to you and pray for your strength strength and perseverance as we share the gospel with others. Let us always do it with kindness, respect and love. But Lord, let us not be put off by being pushed away. Let it all be to the glory of Christ and for the extension of his kingdom. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.